Good morning. Would you turn with me to Colossians 4, either in your scripture journals or in your, in your Bible? Colossians 4, we're going to begin with verse 7. Read that for us in just a moment. I'll give you a second to get there. All right, Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother. You guys with me? Did I already lose you after Tychicus? I'm just saying that because that's where I, my brain normally is. So hang in there, all right? Let's try that again. Tychicus will, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in the prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray for us. Our Father, Lord, I thank you that you have called us as your church. I thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is present inside of us now, working in power. And Lord, I ask you, please, teach us, show us more of who you are and what you're like not just so that we understand more, but Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts to believe and to trust you. Lord, I pray that this morning that the message that is heard is not from a man. God, I pray that you would transform these pressure waves that are going out of my mouth and make them something supernatural, that you would impact our hearts, Lord, please. Change us this morning from your word. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be able to lay off the distractions of the week and the thousands of thoughts in our minds right now to focus on what you are saying to us and to worship you, Lord, in learning and knowing and seeing more of you. I pray that we would love you more. Amen. So, if you know me, for any period of time, you will learn pretty soon that I really love nature 
and animal documentaries. Uh, my kids probably chagrin sometimes. But even since I was a little kid, if my dad saw it on TV, uh, Marty Stauffer's Wild America. Whoa, let's watch that. This is going to be awesome. My poor sister hated it so much. And even today, anytime there's a new animal documentary of some kind on Netflix or Amazon, uh, I've even gone so far as to even purchase something on Netflix or Amazon. You believe that? Uh, to be able to watch more about animal and nature documentaries. And less so for what the narration is saying or what the, you know, what's going on in the background, and much more just to see and wonder the beauty and awe of how creation works and the intricacies, and it just blows my mind. And especially in more recent years, um, if you guys have seen any of the more recent documentaries like Planet Earth or Blue Planet, the technology that's able to capture some of these things is just mind-blowing. Anyway, after uh, Casey and I finished one a couple years ago, Planet Earth 2, um, at the very end of the series, we had just finished it, and I was kind of disappointed that it was over. I saw that, oh, there's one more episode we haven't seen yet. I thought it was over, but it's not. And then I was disappointed to see the making of Planet Earth 2. Oh, I'm not interested in the making of Planet Earth. I don't care about the equipment or the cameras or the people or the relationships. I wanted to see the footage. So I was disappointed and did not watch it. Well, then a couple weeks later, maybe I was like really bored or something. I was like, all right, maybe we'll just watch the making of planet Earth and just see what this is about or something. I'm sure it won't be very exciting, but we'll watch it. And it was one of my most favorite episodes, actually, that I got to see. Because I saw the making of what happened behind the scenes, I saw these cameramen carrying like 100-pound cameras through swamps and brand-new gimbal mounts that are you know, completely computer-controlled to do image stabilization in low light on the you know, Sahara. And it's like whoa, I understand a little bit more of actually what I was watching in the documentary in the first place. I saw people that stayed on an island with no resources or anything like that out in the middle of the Pacific for two weeks to get a shot that they never got, that never made it into even the episode or anything that I was able to watch at all. People that were struggling and working on this for many years before I saw it. Well, this morning, I think when we get to this passage at the end of Colossians, we can be tempted to treat it sort of the way I treated the making of planet Earth 2. Say, oh, we saw everything that Paul was telling us in Colossians. We got the preaching part down. We understand. And now Tychicus and letters and, you know, all these weird names I don't know how to pronounce. I'm sure those were important for those guys, but he's getting wrapped up now. Let's skip. Uh, I guess we're at 1 Thessalonians now, right? You don't have to admit it if that's your, the case. That's the case for me, for sure. I'm very prone to skip it. Or if I don't skip it altogether, just to read it through and be like, yeah, hard name, okay, hard name, all right, hard name. Don't understand why he's saying that. Okay, this is probably something about their culture back then. So this morning, I want to encourage you to lay that aside. And instead, let's be reminded that this is the word of God. This has been preserved for us even today. Even this part of it, God has preserved it for us this morning. I think at the very least, we can say, even before we dive into this, that just even just hearing what I read a moment ago, you can see that this is real people. This was a real letter. You know, we like, can almost think of like God's word as being something like very far off or otherworldly in some ways. Like almost like aliens came and like threw this word down. It's like from another planet, another culture, and we have no way for us to be able to relate to it. Well, but that's not the case. That's not true at all. We can see clearly here this was a letter, a letter written by Paul two people, along with other people that were with him. He's talking about places, he's talking about churches, and he has people in mind when he's writing this. This word is relevant to us, it's approachable by us, and it's understandable for us as well. One last thing before we launch into it. 
I think it's a helpful reminder for us. In verse 16, Paul describes how this letter is going to be used. We get a picture of how it's going to be used. He says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. You see, Paul wasn't just writing to, he's just saying, not saying like, hey, I'm writing to the super high spiritual important person in the church of Colossae, and then he's going to ex, you know, interpret and explain this to you guys, you little church-going people. No, he says this letter is going to be read out for you, and whenever it's been read for you, copy it and send it off to another church, and you should read the letter that they got, by the way. And that's happened on and on and on and on till all the way today, 2,000 years ago. Christ Church of Mount Airy, the year 2021, we are reading the same letter that Paul sent on. And that's no accident. It's not by Paul's power or perfect writing that that happened. It was by the power of God and the Holy Spirit inspiring him and then preserving this word for us today. So I want to set the stage with that. Don't zone out when I start saying weird names or when something seems like not very relatable. This is God's word for us this morning, for us this morning. And I believe that he has something to say to us that will help us and encourage us. So, as we embark now, verse 7 of chapter 4, join me as we look behind the scenes in the making of how Jesus is building his church. I think we get to kind of pull back the curtain, so to speak, and see what's going on. What's going on as Paul is penning this letter. We get some insight on the people that are near him, what they're doing, their relationships, even the early church. And so we get to like peek in a little bit and see what's going on as, as Jesus is building his church. I have five, five ways or five aspects that we can pull out from here. There's definitely more of the way that Jesus builds his church. So here we go. Number one, Jesus builds his church with unity. Jesus builds his church with unity. All right, we're going to get a little interactive part here. Everybody look down at your Bible. Verses 7 through 17, and those of you that are seated, seated here with me, you're going to have to do a little extra work for your friends back, uh, you know, just uh, looking on their TV because I'm not going to be able to hear them. Although maybe if you shout really loud at home, I might be able to hear you. I'm not sure. You should try it. Look down 7 through 17 and see if you can find different types of people. What are the different types of people? I counted nine. Some of those were in between the lines a little bit. But tell me, what do you see? What types of people? Shout it out. A minister, servant, brother, sister, yep, prisoner, good, member, worker, doctor, prayer, very good. All kinds of different people. I also added in Colossian and non-Colossian, um, Jews, Gentiles, men and women, I think just from that list alone, just from that short exercise we just did, we can say that to the world or to the person standing on the outside looking in, these are very different people. And sure, it's a little bit different culture than us, but we understand what it means for people to be divided and to have differences between each other. Certainly Jews and Gentiles, we know a lot about them. They're completely different histories. They identify differently. They had different cultures, rituals. They even purposely stayed separate from one another. But we see them together here. I think we can say with confidence that these people, apart from something supernatural, would really have no reason to want to be together in the first place. 
And certainly if they were meant to be together or forced to be together, they probably would feel differently about each other. I can imagine some feeling sort of superior to others, right? We have a doctor and a slave. I think maybe someone would feel inferior to the others that are with them, perhaps the slave, perhaps even some women in that culture and at that time would feel inferiority. Listen to the way that Paul talks about these people, though. Verse 7, he says of Tychicus, he calls him a beloved brother. This is the apostle Paul, right? He's a Jew. He's an apostle. He's writing the word of God, and he's talking about a Gentile that's with him. He calls him beloved brother and fellow servant. Verse 10 of Aristarchus, Paul says that he's a fellow prisoner. Again, flattening. There's no structure of hierarchy here. He's a fellow prisoner with Paul. And in verse 15, he says, brothers and sisters. I think it's interpreted, I think it's uh, translated in our Bible as brothers, but it's brothers and sisters uh, would be how it would, how it would be understood. And hearing the way Paul talks to these people that are around him, it's all different people in different roles and positions and probably even different financial situations, etc. It sounds more like he's talking about a close-knit family than he's talking about all different people that have nothing in common and nothing to do with each other. At the very least, I think we could say these people would be prone to be divided in some way or to have division. And yet Paul talks about them as a family, a close family, not a dysfunctional family. And I honestly, I think this backs up what we've learned in chapter 3, verse 10. Go ahead and flip back with me to that. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. We studied this some weeks ago. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Paul talks about what we have put on. He says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But, what does he say? But Christ is all and in all. If we skip forward a little bit more to verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, in one body, and be thankful. So my question for us this morning, quickly, let's step back just for a moment, examine, think about ourselves and our culture and our church. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Or is it possible that we at times give in to the temptation to be divisive? to feel division, to make and draw distinctions among brothers and sisters. I think we all know of some simple and even petty things like maybe music that's played at church or instruments that are used at times, different cultures or background, the way services are done or the way that people do certain things, different skin color, different parenting practices or approaches Follow different preachers or different teachers online, maybe? What about different political opinions? Different vaccine decisions? I think it's possible that at the very least we are tempted to divisiveness as believers. But let me just put this in perspective for us. And please, don't tune out. Listen to me. We all, all of us, stood against the God of the universe. 
opposed to him, opposed to him, waving our fist at him in rebellion and saying, we do not want you to be God over us. We want to be God instead. And because of that, because of that, because of our rebellion, because of the sin inside of us, we rightly deserved God's judgment, God's wrath to be poured out on us as a just and holy God. He could not stand for people like us to have sin and be against him in wickedness. And we were deserving of his wrath and of his judgment. That wrath and judgment, by the way, I don't think we can even get our heads around what that fully entails. But it is eternal and it is a terrible thing. And then, in our darkest hour, when we had no hope, when we didn't even want to be redeemed or reconciled to the Lord of the universe because we wanted to be Lord of the universe, God sent his son for us to pay the penalty that we deserve, to take the wrath that rightfully should have fallen on all of us. And Jesus came and willingly laid down his life for us, for all who would believe that they would be forgiven of their sin. And not only that, not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we are also, you remember, clothed with his righteousness. God has forgiven us of all the wrong we've done, and then we put on Christ's righteousness because of everything that he's done, because he was perfect, because he lived the perfect life. God gives that to us, and now we stand, as believers in the Lord Jesus, righteous, perfect, and holy before him. Perfect. Nothing that we brought with us. You remember Matt's t-shirt analogy you've seen a thousand and a half times. Nothing that we had before remains on us anymore. We don't bring in with us our new clothes and then also, oh, we get a badge that says Jesus on it or something. No, our old clothing, our old filthy rags of sin and wickedness are put away. And instead, we get put on Jesus's righteousness. Now, church, if we are all wearing Jesus's righteousness on us and we stand before God, we look as Jesus looks How can there be a distinction between us? How can there be anything different between us? If we look before God as holy and righteous as Jesus, literally having his righteousness on us in our behalf, then what stands between us? What is there? Nothing. There can't be. We are all in Jesus. We're united in him. Our identity is him now. Not us and then also some Jesus. Not a lot of Jesus, but, I get, but still my personality is really what sets me up. No, none of that. We stand before God as identified as in Christ, just like Paul told us about in chapter 3. Christ is in all. Our identity is in him, solely in him. And I'm not saying that we then shouldn't have any differences of opinion or that we shouldn't talk about or discuss or help each other. I think that's one of the reasons God gave us different types of brains and thinking, engineers and arts and people that understand science and that we can talk through politics. But the important thing is that does not and cannot divide us. 
They cannot make us draw distinctions between those that are more Jesus and pleasing to God and those that aren't. We are all united. We are all a body of believers. And we see that played out as we pull back the curtain. We see that played out in in the writing of Colossians and the people that are near Paul. We are all clothed in the same righteousness. We all stand united because of our identity in Jesus. Let me toss one more thing your way, just in case you need any more reason to think or to pursue unity in our church. Let me remind you of John 17. I think I have this up on the screen. You can flip there if you like, though. We studied this a few years ago when we were in John. John 17, this is Jesus praying on our behalf. Jesus praying on our behalf to the Father. This is what Jesus asks. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them his followers, that you may be, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus shows us there that our unity does a lot more than just unify us. It proclaims to the world that we are followers of Jesus. It proclaims to the world that Jesus is one with us and that Jesus was sent by the Father. We are preaching the gospel to the lost world when we show unity in our Lord Jesus. Church, may we believe in Jesus and proclaim him to the world by being a church that is unified, that sees our identity is in Jesus and him alone. And that, yes, we may disagree on things. And yes, we may have different opinions, but that does not divide us. I think we see that beautifully as we pull back the curtain. All right, number two. Jesus builds his church through lowly actions. Couldn't think of a better way to say that. Feel free to scratch it out and write something if you think of a better way. But Jesus builds his church through lowly actions. All right, let's do that exercise again. Look at 7 through 17 and tell me, what are the actions or roles that you see people doing in that passage? What are the things we see people doing? Go ahead, shout it out. I'll I'll give you the first one. This is an easy one. Letter carrying. That's the level I'm kind of talking about. Letter carrying. We see that happen. What else? Sorry? Yes. What else? Sorry? Yes. What else? Praying. I have a total of eight. I had a little more time to look at it, though. And like I said, some of these are in between the lines a little bit. But let me, I'll give you my list. Reading. Yes, that was on there. Letter carrying, news telling, encouraging, comforting, praying, teaching, Letter reading and house opening. (laughs) There might be some more in there. Like I said, some of those are me pulling it out between the lines, but I believe it's all there. So now, after thinking about that list, letter carrying, news telling, praying, comforting, teaching, etc. Do any of these seem like insurmountable, superhuman, all-inspiring jobs? Any of them? Yeah, it, it, it didn't hit me right away, but after talking some more, especially with Jordan, he said, this, this is 
plain type of stuff, right? These, these are lowly actions. These aren't supernatural. He's not mentioning the guys like, oh, yeah, we're taking, you know, this dude with us, you know, I don't know, Tom, because every time he goes somewhere, he's just raising the dead all over the place, right? Or we're taking, you know, uh, Kevin with us because he plays that sick electric guitar and really gets people moving. Yeah. It's like he mentions the mun- seemingly mundane, simple things. And that's what we see the church is doing in the background. For example, Nympha is opening her house. And I think we rightly will think probably not a whole lot about that. Yeah, I open my house up to people as well. What about Epaphras? He's praying. He's encouraged very much actually for praying. Anyone here able to pray? I think when we step back, we can recognize that these actions are actually sacred. They are supernatural. They are supernatural because they are done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And really, that falls perfectly out of what we've studied the last few weeks, doesn't it? Verse 17, flip back with me, 317. We've gone back to this a lot, not least of which was last week we learned about work. Verse 317 says this, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. I highly doubt that Tychicus knew when he was getting that letter that he was carrying the very words of God for his people and that that letter would then be taken and copied and sent and that 2,000 years later we'd even know what the name Tychicus was or who carried that letter in the first place. I highly doubt it. And I think we can learn from that or be reminded of that truth and don't believe the lie that what you're doing is not important. Everything we do is important because it's done in the name of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't need the more spiritually, you know, supernatural people to do something for him. Jesus has done it all. He's accomplished everything. He's letting us join in him in the work he's doing in building his church. And so everything we do from the very simple and mundane is in his name. When you open your house up to your neighbor for coffee... In the name of the Lord Jesus, that is supernatural. That is proclaiming our Lord. When you pray with your kids at night, that is proclaiming our Lord Jesus as preeminent. When you reach out and text a hurting friend, that is proclaiming our Lord. I can imagine... Go with me just for a moment, just in our imaginations. If Paul was, instead of writing to the Colossians, if he was writing to Christ Church of Mount Airy, what are some of the things he might have put in there? I think things like texting your friends, like praying for hurting brothers and sisters, like sharing the gospel or reading from the Bible with your children would make the list. Because it seems like the simple things like that are making the list of Paul that he's writing to the Colossians as well. Our lowly actions, our lowly actions proclaim the preeminent Jesus as he's building his church. As he's building his church, the lowly, simple, everyday things that we do in his name proclaim him and his glory, whether we're seen or acknowledged by other people or whether we're not. It doesn't change that we're doing it in his name.
All right, number three, as we look behind the scenes, Jesus builds his church with suffering. Yeah, it's our favorite one. As we look at the closing of this letter, it's important to remember, where is Paul? Where is he right now? He's in prison. He's in jail. He is a prisoner. He's not eating good food. He's not getting big accolades of people around him. Once again, this is the apostle. He's writing the word of God. He's telling the church what to do. And yet, where is he? He's in an orange jumpsuit eating crappy food. Certainly not being treated very well. I would call that suffering. Aristarchus as well, we learn here, is a fellow prisoner, likely for preaching the gospel as well. We see Paul is being comforted. doesn't exactly explain that more, but the only reason you would need to be comforted is if you're struggling in some way. And we should expect this. Again, let's look at John 15, the words of Jesus. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. This is what Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute his followers, us. 1 Peter 4 also reminds us, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus is building his church with and through suffering. We should expect it. We shouldn't be surprised, like Peter says. And in fact, because we know that it is a part of Jesus building his church, because we have the assurance that we're not suffering in vain or that this world is the end of us, we can actually have hope. We can rejoice even. doesn't mean we have to like suffering. doesn't mean we have to go after and find and cause ourselves to suffer. But we should expect it. Jesus is honored as preeminent when we join in his suffering. And we see that going on in the background in the writing of Colossians as well. Number four. This one's more fun. Jesus builds his church with encouragement. Jesus builds his church with encouragement. So for this, let's look again at our text. Look at how Paul talks about the brothers that are with him, the people that are serving with him. Of Tychicus, Paul says that he's a faithful minister, a servant in the Lord. Of Onesimus, he says he is faithful. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, Paul says they are workers for the kingdom and they are comforters to him. Epaphras, Paul says, is a servant of Christ Jesus, says that he's struggling, he's praying, he's working hard for the brothers and sisters. Paul is is encouraging the brothers by pointing out how they are following Jesus, how they are imaging Jesus. You see, encouraging brothers and sisters when they are honoring Jesus, when they are following Jesus and proclaiming him, is a good thing. We need encouragement. We need to be stirred up in that way. We need to be reminded and pointed out when we are honoring our Lord. Think for a moment. Think about your life. Think about our church. Think about the relationships that you have. Let's make this personal. Has anyone ministered faithfully to you? 
Has anyone been a servant toward you? Served you in some way? What about comfort? Has anyone comforted you or been a comfort to you? Has anyone prayed for you? Prayed faithfully for you? If so, then I think we can be reminded or learn from this text that we should tell them. We should tell them, and it's okay if other people hear it as well. You see, this is different than us just puffing up or building up people for the sake of making them feel good. When we're proclaiming the way that people are following Jesus and the way they're honoring him, when they're doing what Jesus has told us to do in his name, then we can encourage them. And that praise doesn't just end on them. That praise goes through them and goes to our Lord Jesus Christ because we're not elevating that person. We're elevating their Lord and the way that they're serving him. So let me just give you some examples. These are things I just came up with top of my head. I hope you have many more. I encourage you to share them. Chip, when you took your whole weekend off to fix that person's car, it reminded me of Jesus giving himself for us. You gave up your time to love someone. That honors Jesus. Hey, Kate, when you made and delivered that meal for so-and-so, it reflected Jesus' heart for the poor and needy. Well done. And I could make a much longer list of many folks that I know. I think it is good for us to encourage one another. Encouraging one another as we see each other following Jesus. We see each other honoring Jesus, working in his name. We can encourage that. Just like we see Paul encouraging fellow members of his family. We can do the same. Encouraging one another is part of building the church. All right, lastly, number five, as we look behind the scenes, Jesus builds his church with disciples fulfilling the ministry. Jesus builds his church with disciples fulfilling the ministry. Look down at verse 17 with me. Verse 17, second to last verse. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That's all we hear. That's it. He doesn't fill out ministry anymore. He doesn't say who this dude is. He doesn't say what he's going to be doing. Say to Archippus. All right. One commentator that I read this week says that this was the most cryptic verse in all of Colossians. That was helpful for me. Honestly, though, I think in God's wisdom, it is not any less specific than God intended it to be. God didn't make some mistake. Like, oh, man, I wish Paul would have added on what he meant by that. No, this is God's word. Once again, preserved for us, written for us. Maybe God knew that we'd be tempted to use a you know, specific example too literally. In any case, though, I think we can take this as an encouragement for all of us. And the reason I say that is because the word ministry there, the word ministry is not just for pastors. I hope this is not new news to you. I hope this is not something that you've never thought of or heard before. But ministry is not for pastors. Ephesians 4.11, I think we have it up on the screen. It uses the same word for ministry, diakona. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Who is doing the work of ministry? It's all of us. It's all of us. It's followers of Jesus are doing the work of ministry. 
Paul is telling Archippus to do what we are all called to do. Maybe there's some more specific there. We don't know. I'm not going to pretend that I know. But I do know that all of us here, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to be ministers. And in some ways, I think we can be more specific, but I can also very easily generically say, Matthew 28, 19, a familiar passage to us, tells us what that work of ministry is. Will you read this with me? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All saints are called to ministry. All saints are called to make disciples. All saints are called to teach what Jesus has taught. And really... That sums up all the points that we had this morning. We are called to be followers of Jesus. We are called to do what Jesus has called us to do. The good news is Jesus has done all the work. He lived perfectly. He paved the way for us. He is preeminent over all, as we keep being reminded in the book of Colossians. As believers, we simply get to follow him and join our Lord as he builds his church. As a side note, look back at 17 again. Who is Paul addressing in verse 17? It's not Archippus. Who is he actually addressing? The hearers of the letter, I suppose, the church. He doesn't say, Archippus, do so and so. He says, tell Archippus. And maybe that's just a helpful reminder for us as well. Let's take this as a reminder to encourage each other to fulfill the ministry. Yes, we are to fulfill the ministry that we've been called by our Lord Jesus, and we are also called to remind and encourage each other to fulfill the ministry, to be doers of the Great Commission, to go make disciples. I need that encouragement. We all need that encouragement. Encouraging each other in this way does something else as well. I think it also protects us. There's actually a very subtle Kind of small warning in this passage as well. Let me draw it out for you. Demas is also mentioned in this passage, and Paul doesn't say anything else about him, good or bad. He doesn't call him beloved. Everybody else that's mentioned here has some other qualifier or something good that they've done or goes with them. Demas is just, Demas greets you. If we flip over to 2 Timothy 4.9, I think I have it up on the screen. 2 Timothy 4.9, most scholars think that this is the same Demas. This is written 20, 30 years later, something like that. Paul says, do your best to come to me, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know much about Demas. I'm not going to pretend that that absolutely is how it worked. This is the same Demas that was here with Paul. But I do think it reminds us of the sober warning that we got back in verse 16. That we are called to not shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Perhaps Demas, who maybe even heard Paul writing the letter of Colossians, heard Paul warn not to shift from the hope of the gospel, heard Paul say how preeminent our Lord Jesus is, saw it functioning and working around him in ministry. Perhaps, even so, he still shifted from the hope of the gospel. This is not something we should fear 
because our Lord is able to hold us and care for us. But I do think it's a reminder for us to have our hope only in Jesus, nothing else. And it's a reminder for us to encourage one another to fulfill the ministry also. Just like we were in James, if you remember that. If you see a brother wandering off, be quick to grab them and encourage them. Remind them of where our hope lies. Our hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's encourage one another to fulfill the ministry. All right, that's my five points. There you go. That's a behind-the-scenes look at Jesus building his church as Paul was writing the book of Colossians. First, Jesus builds his church with unity. Jesus builds his church through lowly actions. Jesus builds his church with suffering, but Jesus also builds his church with encouragement. And Jesus builds his church with disciples fulfilling the ministry. The beautiful thing, of course, is that we actually aren't seeing anything brand new in this passage. There's not some cryptic thing hidden in the closing that I had to somehow pull out for us. No, this is the same message and same good news of the gospel that we've heard. I do think it helps us, though, a little bit to see maybe a little bit more color, a little bit more rich into how the church functioned. To remember that this is not some far-off message that's distant from us or unrelated to us or not approachable by us. But no, these were real people. This was a real church that functioned. I think we can get a little bit more understanding of how Jesus is building his church. And my prayer for us, church, Christ Church of Mount Airy, is that we join Jesus as he builds his church by being unified, serving in lowly actions, faithfully suffering, encouraging one another, which is summed up by fulfilling the work of the ministry that Jesus has called us to. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would that you would help us fulfill the ministry that you have called us to. Jesus, I thank you that you are, in fact, preeminent and over everything. I thank you that we don't have to bring anything good with us, and we don't have to fear or worry for the bad that we have, because, Jesus, you have taken it all, and we stand clothed in your righteousness. Jesus, I thank you that you are building your church And I thank you that you let us join you in that. Lord, I pray that this word would encourage our hearts. I pray that it would sink down deep and that we would believe you more because of it. Our lives would be transformed because of who you are, Jesus. And then we would be so quick to give you glory and praise that we be so quick to tell others about our preeminent Jesus. Lord, help us to encourage one another. Help us to be united. Help us to be faithful when we suffer. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your spirit in us. We need you to empower us. But we also are excited and praise you because we know that you're doing that. We believe that you have given us the power and you are equipping us for the work of ministry and you are sending us out. Jesus, we love you. We love you. And we want to follow you as you build your church. Amen.